everybody. Welcome to This Good Word, episode 18. The word this week is God. I have a rambling, rambunctious, beautiful, expansive conversation with Aaron Lane about what we talk about when we say we are created in the image of God. What does that mean, that both males and females are created in God's image? What does that mean for the genderfulness of God? So Aaron wrote a great book called Lessons in Belonging from a Church-Going Commitment-Phobe. She is married to, in her words, a small man with a big beard named Rush. She lives in Durham, North Carolina. She works for the Center of Courage and Renewal. She went to Davidson College, and she got her master's in theology from Duke University, and her area of study was gender, theology, and ministry. And when you hear her talk, you're going to see this woman has serious chops, um, and she is very, very bright. She's very well-read, and she is hilarious. She's very thoughtful. So the conversation we have is really, really fun. Erin uh, has written articles for Relevant, Q, The Washington Post, On Faith, Faith and Leadership, and you're going to love, love, love this conversation. Before we get to it, just really, really quickly, uh, check out the show notes for all the links to Aaron's book and Aaron's other writings. Uh, check that out at steveweens.com backslash blog. And anything else we talk about, any books that are mentioned or quotes that are mentioned, you can find that on the show notes. Also, I'm giving away one more book uh, in this uh, journey toward my book release, my book Beginnings. So just email me at steve at steveweens.com with your story of why you need me to send you a signed copy of my book, why you need to read it right now. Uh, it comes out on January 1st, so we are getting very close, ladies and gentlemen, and I cannot wait. If you'd like to pre-order your copy, you can find a link on the show notes, and so please do that. And if you like it, share it. Uh, that's a, just a great gift you can, you can uh, give to me. Talk about it. Uh, wherever it is that you talk about stuff that you're excited about. Okay, without any further ado, we're going to get into this conversation with Aaron. Uh, it was a Skype conversation, and so my hope is that the sound quality is good. Uh, I think it's good enough, but it's not like she was sitting in my office in front of two microphones. Um, but I think we did a pretty good job about making sure the sound quality is as good as it could be. So enjoy and uh, get in touch with Erin, read her stuff. She is the bomb. She's the best. She's a new friend, and uh, I loved our conversation. So enjoy. Hello. How are you? I'm so good and jittery and eager. I, I've been, like, so excited for this for days. Yes. I mean, true confession. Um, so I'm in – this is my office. This is where I write. This is where I, you know, sit in my pajamas and work and all that stuff. And so I had this like, I was like, okay, do I, do, do, do I just stay that way or do I shower? Because we are meeting for the first time sort of, and so I, I did shower, Aaron. I mean, I, I, I showered, so. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> I, I did not. Oh my I sprayed gosh. perfume. Wow. That's impressive. So. That's impressive. <laughs> well, we're going to dive right in. Um, I thought it would be fun for me to ask you some quick, like lightning round questions, if you're okay with that. Yeah, let's do it. And then we'll dive into the the deeper stuff. And then did you want to do like do you want me to ask 
you all of my questions first and then you ask your questions or do you want to flip-flop? What sounds better? I think we can try to flip-flop and just kind of riff on what we've got going. That'll be the most fun. Yes. Love it. Okay. We will, we will flip-flop. All right. So lightning round. First person who really encouraged you to write because you, my friend, are an amazing writer. Oh, thank you. Um, the first person that I really remember is a woman named Rosie Molinari, who was at Davidson College, and she taught me that not all writing had to be academic, and that I could actually use I pronouns and convince people of something. Fantastic. Yeah, I saw you went to Davidson, and you went to Duke for grad school, correct? Yes, and I, you know, honestly, I went to seminary at Duke for my master's, and they tried to wiggle that out of me, wiggle out that kind of trust in my own personal voice and authority. So by the time I got out of Duke, I was so good at quoting other people and so bad at owning my own ideas. So it's funny how we as writers get affirmation and then also get deformations over the course of our vocation. Oh, mama, that is totally true. And they both can be sort of instructive, right? Um, but but <laughs> I don't like the deformations as much as the affirmations. Oh, no. No one likes that. All right. So uh, favorite author right now? Oh, I mean, you're my favorite author right now. No, no, no. I just, no, finished, no. Your book. I just finished your book, and I just love, like, really getting deeply into someone's head while I'm reading them. Mm. Uh, and I become a book evangelist, but only for about, like, one or two titles a year. Right. Um, so I am super pumped about beginnings. Um, and if I'm not being a fangirl, my favorite writer right now would be... <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert, maybe? Oh, she's great. She's Yeah. Funny. My husband listens to, like, Robcast all the time. Yep, yep. And he has loved interviews with her that have made me think, like, we are each other's people. I'm yes. sure she makes a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> but she does, though. I mean, because uh. I've listened to all those interviews, too, and I love her. I loved – I mean, my, my favorite uh, of hers, The Signature of All Things. I mean, I, I was just – that book blew me away. I like Big Magic. So good. Haven't finished it yet, but the signature of all things wrecked me. I mean, that was so beautiful. Who are you reading now? Do you read anyone when when you're about to launch your own book, or do you kind of take a fast from reading other people's writings? No, I I am always reading. I'm always reading um, right now. So my favorite author of all time is Frederick Beekner. I just his the way he, his writing is so delicious. To me, so when I like that is like swimming in a pool for me. That's like eating dessert. Um, uh, so I just downloaded his whole Beb series because I've never read that uh, one. His his novels um, because it, it it helps me uh, remember why I do it, Ooh. and it helps me to relax. <laughs> you know, so like because uh, I'm in, I I don't know how you are when you're about to launch like when you when you have launched your books but I am a mess I mean I'm a mix of excited slash nervous slash feeling lame about all the self-promotion I'm <laughs> doing right now you know what I mean like am I being slimy and weird and so um like last night I poured myself a little drink and I read a little beb and it was good for my soul <laughs> That's awesome. I call that devotional reading, the reading uh, that just kind of slows my soul down and feels like centering time rather than just an exercise in literary love. 
Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, yeah. So like there's Annie Dillard and others that it's sort of, you know, work. It's beautiful, but it's for, for me, it's work. Um, Beekner is beautiful, but it's, but it's not work. I can just, I can just sink right into it. And I, I mean, feel that, I feel that way about like Mary Oliver poems. Oh or, yes. Or Barbara Brown Taylor's writing. Yeah. Uh, just like really makes me kind of want to swim and mm. take a bath and pour yes. a glass of wine and yes. trust that God is in all those things. I love Barbara Brown Taylor. I, okay. We clearly are each other's peeps. So, okay. Uh, morning routine. What is your morning routine? I wake up around 8.30, which is usually an hour after my husband has woke up. We don't have any any little ones in the house besides a dog named Amelia Bedelia. Um, and so I get out of bed. I eat granola. I like to eat the same thing every day because I get overwhelmed by choices. Yes. So I just decide granola and yogurt is my thing. And I, I pour a bowl. Uh, and I usually come into my office and uh, read a book for the first 20 or 30 minutes of my day. And sometimes it's a workbook, so I work for the Center for Courage and Renewal, so I'm always reading a lot of books on ministry and leadership and spiritual formation. Yep. Um, and then some days when Rush, my husband, just really wants me to join him for breakfast, we watch some uh, some of the stand-up from Jimmy Fallon. Or yes. If, if we're feeling particularly devious, we get to the first guest or two. That is awesome. I love that. Yes, I loved, so Rush, your husband who is a small man with a big beard. I love, I love that description. So good. You're, I mean, I, I really seriously, so I, I started reading your book, which we'll talk about later. Um, and I was telling my wife about it and she's like, all right, so, so what's the book about? You know, is it about belonging? And I go, yeah, but, um, I mean, it's really, it's really a book about, it's, it's, it's a book about church from a millennial. And I said this and I hope you take this the right way because it really is. It's like a lot of people are talking about the church and millennials, but your book has been, um, because your writing is so witty as well as it has a theological gravitas to it, um, that it is, it's fresh. And to be fresh in a field that um, is not quite fresh is, is quite a thing. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be pumping your book as well because it really, it's, it's just so good. It's so good. So thank you. Yeah, man. I think what excites me about hearing that is I feel like in that book I took a real risk with like almost making it a marriage book. I feel like it's a very like covert marriage book that not a lot of people talk about. Yeah. They really do. I mean, it's couched under this year of uh, trying to find a church home as a feminist in the American South and just all the weird, awkward, messy things that come with that. Um, but learning how to belong to that church, as I say in the book, like I can't do that without like looking at the people I belong to yeah. and then trying to like scale that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Rush plays a huge role in that book and was gracious enough to let himself be a character. <laughs> that is, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I love, cause you write about it with a kind of depth that, that is real. I mean, I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for 20 years and the reality is it is a community of people and you don't like all of them and they don't all like you. Um, but, but there is this, um, there's a beauty in, um, in, in saying we belong to each other, uh, mm -hmm. no matter what. And, and, and there's the weird uncle and there's the weird, you know, so, um, and there just is, and maybe I'm the weird uncle. I mean, I don't know. So, um, oh, it's just so good. And I, I, I just, I, I think we're going to have to do another podcast and the word will be belonging. 
and it'll mm-hmm. be me and you because we'll just talk about that because that's a big thing or church maybe um, or both. So, okay, we're going to, I mean, we're never going to get into the actual questions. This is going to be a 17 hour podcast. What are you writing right now? If you, if I can ask you that, and sometimes that's a secret, I know, but are you writing a book right now? Are you working on something? Right now I'm writing really long emails because I'm not writing anything. And so (laughs) (laughs) I am writing really long email updates to a group of college girlfriends, uh, on my, uh, new journey to become a foster parent. So my husband and I just got licensed as foster parents in August and have not received our first placement yet. And it has been a crazy whirlwind for two perpetual planners to go on. And so every month I, I send them a long, uh, whimsical flowery email about the journey that I always end with. This is more for me than you, so please do not feel like you have to respond. <laughs> oh, that's, wow, what a yeah. Wow. But I need to wow. capture it somewhere, and I love I love going public yeah. with my thoughts. And and I've learned since the book came out, and it just felt like one big vulnerability hangover yep. that there are ways I can go public that still feel safe for those more fragile moments of life. So I'm not real ready to go super deep into the foster journey um in the blogosphere yeah but how can i start kind of speaking some of these things into existence with my friends beautiful and i hope we get into talk if you're open to talking about you and rush have decided not to have biological children um and i I would love to get into that do do you want to get into that right now or is that or is there a place um because that's a a courageous choice a beautiful choice i i you know maybe some people don't understand that um how'd you get to that um yeah, if you don't mind talking about that. Yeah, the short version is so much of vocation for me has been discerning what am I noticing that other people aren't. So like what what do I look at? Uh, and when I kind of point it out to other people, they're like, what? I don't get it. Um, those have been like very clarifying moments for me. And so very early on, I went to undergrad at Davidson College, uh, which I was coming from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd grown up in Chicago, Illinois. So coming from the North, if you will, the Midwest. Um, and for the first time was around a much different gendered culture than I had been growing up and realized that this desire or lack of desire, I really had, uh, around the nuclear family, um, and really a lack of imagination too. Like I just hadn't pieced anything together, um, about what that part of my life might look like. I didn't have any hopes, um, that I could articulate. Yeah. And so I was like, huh, that's something worth paying attention. I wonder what that means. I wonder if I won't have children. I wonder if I'll just have them really late. I wonder if there'll have to be accidents for me to love them. Um, just paying attention to that. And then like, I find this man who also doesn't really have a strong desire for bio kids, just kind of like too serendipitous to not be a God thing. Yeah. And so we both, when we got married, we were so clear with our marrying pastor, do not talk about being fruitful, do not talk about our offspring, like we really want to celebrate the two of us and say that's enough, no matter what happens after the two of us, like we're enough, we don't have to produce anything together to be enough as a couple. Oh, I love that, I love that, I love that. (laughs) No, because we, I mean, my wife and I were infertile for a lot, a lot of years, and uh, and we have friends, lots of friends that are uh, infertile or on that journey of wondering if they will. And there are so many messages of shame to married couples. Um, it's like you are defective if you can't produce a child and mm-hmm. or maybe don't want to or maybe feel ambivalent. And we felt a lot of ambivalence, especially Mary, actually, about having kids. And um, that's just not like people don't know how to interact with that, you know. 
Um, and so I love, I love, love, love the intentionality with which you guys have been thinking about that. That's cool. Very cool. You all have probably noticed that often when I hear sermons or read writing about this in the Christian context, it's usually married with children or single without. Like those are the right. two dichotomies. Uh, and we make a lot of assumptions on what people's lives uh, and service to to whom, to each other, to the church, to the community are going to be based on that dichotomy. And it just, I think, is so clear more and more that that is falling through. The nuclear family is looking much different now than it ever has before. And, and biblically speaking, there's such an imagination for uh, what kinds of families take primacy uh, and what has real spiritual significance. So... I'm, I'm excited about kind of what we will learn uh, and what we can offer. That's the other thing. I hate when people say, well, it's your decision. It's a personal decision. I'm like, no, I'm making this decision in part because I've like recognized these things about how God's made me, but also because with any gift, I kind of wonder where's it going to land in the community? Like yes. what, how is this like peculiarity going to serve the common good? So I want people to care that I'm choosing to be childless by choice. And I want them to say, great, that means you can babysit like the occasional Friday night. Great, that means that um, you're available to do these things that we might not be because we do have a commitment to the people in our home right now. Yeah. Um, so that's been the other thing that's been interesting uh, to wrestle with. Um, I, I love that. And clearly that's some of your passion around helping uh, scheme ideas for helping people to learn how to belong. M my wife, uh, her youth pastors were the uh, same way. They, they chose not to have biological kids, but they felt like it was a real calling on their lives because they, they were like lifelong youth ministers, right? And they felt like that gave them a kind of space that they wouldn't otherwise have. And they, I mean, the stories of that community of kids who are now grown um, and the kind of impact that those, that those two had on them uh, were pretty special. So I like that that's, that's a communal uh, reality that is um, to be looked at from the community and not just a personal choice. I like how you said that. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Thanks. Aaron, let's dive in. I mean, I'm so excited. Not that we haven't dove in, but <clears throat> um, so let me ask you some questions and then you ask me questions and we'll just, yeah, we'll just riff back and forth. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do uh, it. All right. So tell me about the church in which you grew up that formed the woman that is Aaron S. Lane. And what does S stand for again? Just quick. Stefan. It's a good okay. Irish name. Stefan. Okay. So talk about the church you grew up in and how it formed you and how you think about God, church, femininity, masculinity, all that stuff. Oh, man. All right, I'll start small. Yes. Our Lady of Humility mm. is a little Catholic parish in the northern suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, and that's the longest time I ever spent in one church. My family moved around a lot, but that was the church in which I was both baptized, not baptized, good Lord, um, in which I took my first communion okay. um, and in which I was confirmed. So... I think as a Catholic, it was very clear that going to church was never about the people. Like, we were not going to church to spend time with people. We were going to spend time with God, and people just happened to be there. Right. 
Um, and so I think what was so disorienting when I started going to uh, a non-denominational church in high school um, was the emphasis that was put on the social nature of, of being together. And part of that was also an emphasis on the, the kind of extroverted way of being together through the right. sermon, lots of right. words, not right. a lot of time for individual contemplation. Um, and so like people always like talk about Catholic guilt, but like I talk about like Protestant pressure, just like yes. pressure to be like doing things on your own, like quiet time, however many times a day <laughs> and like joining one small group once a week and one service opportunity. And like, all of that is like so good at its heart, um, but I really missed the the unspoken communal nature of of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and so the things I most loved about Catholicism when I was younger were the the ritual, just the predictability. So much of my my childhood was unpredictable. My parents got divorced when I was eight. Um, and I think we felt that fissure much earlier than that. And so I think I just loved going, knowing it was going to be like not longer than 45 minutes. Yeah. And here were each of the parts and we could kind of mark time together over the course. Um, I loved following along in the Sunday Missal. I loved reading, lit like reading liturgy, being the lectern. Um, I started doing that when I was in sixth grade. And, like, I'm not going to lie, there was a little bit of ego involved. Yeah. Like, I was really good at it. Totally. And, like, people were like, whoa, how old are you? And so I kind of got off on that. Um, but I think I still really loved bringing a fresh word. And the notion that no matter where we were, uh, the more my family got scattered across the country, like, we were all sort of rehearsing the same rituals. It became really important to have that sense of connectedness. Um, and then of course there were things I just thought were so lifeless, um, and, and that the rules that actually constrained the freedom that I saw, um, possible, mostly through my own mother's faith who converted to Catholicism, but, um, oh, really? had, had gotten a more charismatic stream, uh, a couple years after getting married. So I sometimes describe myself as a charismatic Catholic. That is sort of what, um, has made up this person who now thinks of church as both a place where we receive communion from God, we receive the sacraments, we receive God's presence through these very ordinary means, and a place where we practice our belonging, our communion with each other. So I think it's become more both and now for me rather than it's just about the sacraments or it's just about the um, the preaching of the word. Totally. Um, and so... When it as it relates to the image of God and, and the kind of uh, pictures of you of God that you got growing up, um, were there? I mean, I assume that they were primarily masculine, right? God is Father. He all the you know all the word. I mean, I love your I love that post that you wrote for Q Ideas, um, even recently about some of the worship songs. But um, you wrote your master's thesis on the genderfulness, if that can be a word, of of God. And I think it is, because, I mean, I wrote about it in my book. You did your master's thesis about it, and that's some of how we connected, I think. It's like, what? Wow. Because not that many people think about it that way. Um, it has to be a thing, right? Now two people have separately. Yeah, it is a thing. Can we make it be a, <laughs> it's a thing? thing? It's definitely a thing now. So how would you define the genderfulness of God? I think the simplest way of saying it is God's genderfulness is the belief that Genesis 1, 27 is true. Yes. 
we are made in the image of God. We were made male and female. Therefore, God must be male and female. And and I would add, and then some. Like, right? Like, there's a quality. <laughs> I'm raising my hands, probably, of people listening. I wish this was a video podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that and then some, right? It's like a space of a lot of contention. But I think that obviously if God's ways are higher than our ways, we, we kind of don't know what that mix of male and female and whatever um, exists in the image of God. But I think we know that if both genders and then some um, reflect the image of God, then we can see both of them reflected in, um, in, in ourselves and, and in the Godhead. Um, and it's interesting, when I was in divinity school, I had a really great Old Testament professor who suggested that Genesis one twenty seven is an example of merism. I don't know if you've ever heard no. of this theory, but merism is this like rhetorical strategy where you name two poles of a spectrum. Ah. And so what if naming male and female is saying these are like the two real strong poles that we see of this expression of God's gender? But there's a lot of stuff in between. Yeah, and people fall along the spectrum, right? Um, all along the spectrum, male and female, right? I mean, is that sort of the the, the theory? It's not it's not two camps. Yes, it's, it's a not spectrum. a box that you can check and say right. like I am always and only um, this gender. And that sounds so wacky, and I don't have any clue if those original writers of Genesis right, 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 right. were like, we're going to use this literary strategy called merism. I'm sure they didn't. Um, but just kind of, it's fun and imaginative and exciting and expansive and inclusive to think that there are ways of reading scripture that can still be orthodox yeah. and open up these possibilities for understanding the lived reality we see every day. Yes. I think that's, I, I love that. I'm going to have to include that in the show notes. Merism, I will look that up. Um, but I remember doing some studying about the brain development and social development. And when we're kids, you know, we only understand tall by looking at short or big by looking at small. So we automatically translate things and even understand things in, in a binary nature, this or that, um, you know, a different... Uh, is sort of along the opposites. And then as we, as we get older, we're, we expand to be able to say, no, life is so much more of a spectrum. But most of, and this is the ouch part, most of the American evangelical church stays in that infantile binary mode of understanding. I can only understand Christian by understanding that a Jew is completely and totally other uh, versus saying, well, no, actually, right? And so um, um, that's some of, that has to be some of the invitation to belonging in a community where there is the other, right? And there's me and there's you and there's us together, um, right? So um, can I get an amen, Aaron? I mean, yes. is that... Yes. Um, yeah, I'm just right. totally geeking out in my mind. I love this developmental angle. I'm really intrigued by this because I was going back over um, some exegetical notes I had on Galatians 3.28, mm. which harkens back to Genesis yeah. 1.27, oh, yeah. right? Um, and I have it up in front of me, and I'll just read passages, uh, the verse 25 through 28. 
And Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And it goes on. I guess I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's interesting to think about, is, is, is part of that early understanding of male and female um, something that is what we experience as children that helps us understand the world and that as we grow older, we don't need the, the, the strict order that helped us make sense of things. But now there's a different challenge. Now there's a liberative challenge. Um, mm. So yeah, there's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. Again, right, it's always really interesting, but it's the and female and not an either or even right. there. Right. Um, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, and just really interesting to think about how social identity markers have some utility. Yeah. Um, but Dorothy Sayers says, like most categories, they have some utility for a time. Um, and then they don't. And then they don't. And, and it's okay. I mean, gosh, so, so one of you, I mean, I'll... We're going to jump all around if that's all right. But like one of your questions, I think to me and, and that, 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 that you sent me was, um, oh, let me see. Let me find it. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Some people think coming up with different names for God is too out there or politically incorrect. What do you say to them? Right. Yeah. And because I think this is right at the heart of what you were just saying is that, um, so it's really fascinating in Exodus uh, 3, when Moses meets God in the burning bush, what is it? It's light and all this stuff. And um, and then Moses has the audacity to ask God God's name. So even that right there, I think, is the writer saying one of the most important things we can do is address God and say, who are you? Right? Because it's not as obvious as we think it is. And then God's response is, which means basically, I will be what I will be. I am a verb. I will be what I, and it's kind of playful is how I read it. Um, and so the first, the first recorded question of who is God's name, we get a playful answer. I will be who I will be. And so, and then all over the scriptures, there's all kinds of names for God. I mean, there's weird names. El Shaddai, uh, as far as I'm aware, means the breasted one. So, I mean, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it, uh, whoever. <laughs> but, but like, really? Wow. So there, for me, there, there, it has to be okay to keep asking God, God's name and keep getting expansive answers. And that I think is the nature even of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reveals himself. Well, it's blinding light. Uh, Peter, you know, Elijah and Moses are up there talking to Jesus. I mean, what is that? That's bizarre. That's, that's, but, um, and Peter doesn't even know what to do. And so he tries to, he tries to build some, some new tabernacles. Um, and Jesus kind of says, well, you know, okay, let's just, let's just go back down the hill and by the way, don't, don't really tell people about this. Um, Jesus on the mountain revealing himself as completely other. Um, and we don't really get the answer to that. Also says the names of God must continually, must continually, our, our understanding of the names of God must 
continually be expansive. Mm. Otherwise, um, otherwise it, it, it stops working for people. And I think are like, are we afraid to say a certain understanding has stopped working or, or do we, will we demand that people go back and adopt something that eh, doesn't work anymore? And that I think I have a lot of passion about that. As you can see, but yes. that kind of drives me crazy. You know, I think you're lifting up one the reality making power of words, like yes. Moses asking God's name because names uh, impart almost a prophetic kind of reality. You write about this a little bit yeah. in the beginnings about the importance of uh, asking God what our name is. Yes. Um, so that we can own some parts of ourselves that maybe we've been reluctant to own. So we can live into parts of ourselves that maybe we haven't um, been paying attention to with great awareness. And so the naming um, of God is really an attempt to name reality, which yes. I think is, which is huge. That's why it's huge. And that's why I think this riff in me early on was that names for God and then being almost solely masculine didn't name the lived reality I experienced in and seeing God in most most intently in my mother. Yeah. Um. So I, I yeah. I, so I think these names are very important, and I don't understand why a multiplicity of names isn't more celebrated um, in in our liturgy. And I'm all about, you know, I'm a Catholic crossing myself every week and, and saying Father, Son, and whole. I'm, I'm about affirming the tradition that I come from. And I think there is so much more play to go back yeah. to the playfulness of God's response. There's so much more play in names for God that we are just sort of not tapping into. I agree. I think there's so much more. Um, and, and you, so you wrote to me that you feel like your name is fire, right? Yes. Can you talk more about that? That is delicious. Well, yes, I can. Um, I'm a bit of a commitment phobe, so I can't decide now between two names. <laughs> okay, that's cool. But I will talk to you about fire. Um, I often struggle with how angsty I am. I'm very angsty, and I get very fired up about things, and I can be very cynical, and I can be very um, particular, and I can be very high-maintenance, and there are just all of these things that I often don't see represented in Christians uh, in public leadership, and I often don't see represented in women yeah. in public leadership. And so I often feel very ostracized for being like an angry Christian woman, that I am not an edifying person to the church. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I also, um, when I was doing what you encourage readers in beginnings to do, which is really pray and sit with, um, what, what is the name God might have for me and really ask God to speak something. Um, I also heard the names that other people had called me over the years. Um, and the ones that really stuck out to me were uh, fragile. Hmm. So I was told in one of the early Christian internships I applied for to work with homeless people that I was too fragile because I, admit, I admitted that they scared me. Yeah. Um, and I admitted that as a young woman, I'm particularly afraid of kind of what my body yeah. um might signify or might invite. So by being honest, I was told that I was being too fragile as a leader. The second thing, I often have a fear of being inappropriate. Mm. Um, my mother does not filter. <laughs> and <laughs> uh. 
she uh, <laughs> she it, it, it's great. I mean, the spirit the spirit works through it. And as a kid, it was very embarrassing. Um, and and so I always have a fear that like I will be inappropriate. Um, that there will be a, a shadow side of my mother's effervescence that I will um, hang on to. And then the last thing, um, what is the last thing? It was fragile, inappropriate, and reckless, um, that I am reckless. And so as I was thinking about these words, the image of fire came to me, and I've done this path elements profile where I I got out of all the four natural elements. Fire was closest to my personality, um, although I also feel a really strong kinship to wind. Mm. But fire, I thought about it, and I was like, Fire kind of is all those things. Like fire kind of is fragile mm. if you don't tend it well, but you wouldn't look at fire and call fragile. it fragile. Yeah, right, that's, right. that's just not like, that's not what you would call it. And and fire can be inappropriate in some contexts. But again, who's going to look at a warm fire and say that's inappropriate? Um, maybe it can be dangerous if not uh, lit in the right circumstances. Um, but that's not bad. Like that's not bad of fire. And then reckless, same thing, right? If, if the conditions aren't there for fire to grow and there aren't people around it that, that can help tend it and really love it, then yeah, it could get out of hand. Um, and so fire was this really interesting word I received about my own name um, that seemed to not negate those words but redeem them. Yes. And also say, yeah. You might be some of those things sometimes, but like that's not at all what you would look at when I see you. Um, and there's so many other things about fire that I would say first before any of those things. And like that's what I want you to like hear. That is beautiful. I mean, to and it what it sounds to me like you sort of transcended and included some of those other things that you know. Yeah, maybe there is some fragility. Maybe there is some um, recklessness. Uh, maybe there is some inappropriateness. And maybe it's even like kind of awesome. But also maybe <laughs> it can hurt people. You know, sure. I mean, that's all part of it. Um, because I think there's like we, even when we think about, okay, I, I love that you're saying this in, in, in this way because I don't really write about the, that in the book. But I think when we, when we hear our name for God, and it's going to be the sanitized thing that's perfect, and that has no <laughs> imperfection in it. It's there's no error in it, but really, it's it's still us. I mean, and there's beauty in that, and and there's some tragedy in that. And so, man, I loved how you said that, and I love the picture of that. I love that that's where God led you. Mm. Um, that is really that's just rich, um, and I, I hope people. Because it's a very vulnerable thing to sit with God and what is what is my name? I remember years ago. So do you remember um, a book called Wild at Heart? Do you remember that book? Yes. <laughs> well, ten years ago, man, I was so into that thing. It was like John Eldridge and all that stuff. So I went out to a I went out to an event. Yes, you did. I totally did. I went out to you know it was all men and all this stuff. And and one of, I mean they they really encourage men to look for their names, but. Like probably out of the 300 – okay, so, okay, I want to be careful because it really was a beautiful moment actually and it's all about stages and where are you. So I am so not like – or I'm trying not to 
put down a moment that really was important. But I so wanted my name to be Aragorn, you know. I so <laughs> wanted my name to be like William Wallace. And so I think um, there's a difference between what gets charged up in you as like a 30, you know, I was 31 or 32. Um, and then um, I write about the name I got in, in the book and it's just, it was born out of a, almost a humiliation, you know, um, versus this charged upness. And it came to me as a complete surprise. Um, and it, I mean, it, it made me weep right away. And, you know, so the name, and I, I feel bad. I mean, I wrote about it, so I shouldn't feel all that bashful about it, but the name that I got was complete. And, um, and it shocked me because I, you know, I started growing up. I, as a pastor, I feel very different than most pastors and I love being a pastor, but I'm, I don't fit the bill of most, most pastors. And so there's a lot of ways in which I feel incomplete. I love to write. I'm an introvert. And so, you know, I was a youth pastor for a lot of years and an introverted youth pastor. Um, my husband is an introverted youth pastor. Okay, so. so you totally get it. So, like, man, when you know lock-ins or mission strips, it was oh, just I mean, beautiful students. But oh, anyway, so I think it's a vulnerable thing to ask God for your name. It feels sometimes like is this magic? You know, are we throwing up fairy dust? But on the but when you describe it the way you did, it, it's like an integration. Um, mm -hmm. It's an integration of your past, present, and future. Um, and so thank you for that gift. That was, that was cool. That was really cool. Well, and I think it harkens back to what you were saying about names for God. Um, I write in lessons and belonging about changing my name back to my maiden name. Yeah. So I, I took Rush's name and then four years later gave it back yeah. and still married to him. Um, and, and thinking about that came across Clement of Alexandria's reflection that God is sort of made whole by a multiplicity of names. And he has a really beautiful quote um, about that God is not encompassed in any one thing. So, of course, God would be made more whole by more names that are accurate, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah. make up a truthful picture of who God is. And I think for me, that's so much about the genderfulness of the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's so much more than just a... A reflection on Genesis 127, although that's for me the starting place. Yeah. But if we look at Christ, um, who came to this life in a masculine body, yeah. but who we are told to believe over time, that body became the symbolic body of the church. Yes. And so thinking of the church as really literally Christ's body now in the world, Christ is definitely a genderful body. Yes, yes. Because we have so many genders within each of our communities. And we're the reflection now uh, of Christ's hands and feet with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. Um, and so for me, the church is almost the best reason to argue for God's genderfulness because Christ was so explicit, uh, or Paul um, was so explicit about making the metaphor of Christ's body so central to who we are together. Ooh, I love that. I think that's really, really rich. And I think... I think back to Marism. Is that, is that what the... the Marism. So, um, and so Christ's resurrected body on that morning, and people didn't really recognize him, you know? Yeah, so, so weird. It's like, okay, what is, you know, what is that? Um, and then it was like, oh, yeah, of course it's you. So he was like him, but 
more him. And I wonder if even in, in that resurrected body, the, the, the masculine and the feminine um, integrated in the most whole way in that, in that, in that resurrected body. And that, that we are, are the body of Christ reflecting who God is to the world reflecting God's genderful image to the world, reflecting all that is good about masculinity, all that is good about femininity. And when we say that, we don't just mean that when women go around, they're representing all that's good about femininity. And when men go around, they're representing all that's good about masculinity. We're, we're saying that we together, when we're, when, we're, when we're working together, and even when we're on our own, I can represent the femininity of God as I move more told, toward my wholeness in 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 the image in whom I was I was created. That's what we mean, and I think that that's what gets radical. Like that's when people start feeling like what, right? That's when people start hitting the pause button. That's when you get the email. That's when people come up after your sermon. That's when people write in, you know, after you've written the chapter or the essay. So let's get into that a little bit because I mean, yeah. I, you know, because I think it would be more palatable to think what I just said, like it's, yeah, the women represent the femininity of God. The men represent the masculinity and really never the twain shall meet. And as long as they're working together, then we're fine. But, but we're saying, um, and more, we're saying more than that. So how would you riff on that? Mm. I find it so hard to talk about what we even mean by gender when we talk about male and female. And for me today, there's something that I would describe about it that is um, the embodiedness, um, the the earthiness, the um, sensualityness. The really maybe the best way of putting it is like the secret sauce for connection. Like it's it's the part in us. The um, secret sauce for connection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. Um, sorry, I, I'm, I'm a terrible interrupter when it, when it comes to interviewing. I, I'm, I'm just horrible, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no apologies. Um, yeah, so for me, it's, it's just really hard to talk about, even when um, people wonder, well, what can I do to sort of represent the masculine and feminine of God well? Mm -hmm. um, and this is perhaps a good segue into a conversation on pronouns. Yes. Um, because as I think about how to even talk about the genderfulness of God without wigging people out. Yeah. yeah. I hit a wall. Totally. Um, because I think traditionally what I've seen happen in the church for the last 15 or 20 years is if people want to bring in the, the feminine side of God or the genderfulness of God, it looks like very stereotypically feminine images. So let's emphasize the mother hen, let's yeah, emphasize yeah. Paul and um, his likening himself to like a nursing mother. Like let's bring in all of the things about nurturing and right. gentleness. And if we do that, that will then have made a feminine counterpart um, for this, this father gun. And, and I think in the last five years or so, I think people are seeing that even more and good Lord, they probably have been seeing it for, yeah for decades, centuries. Um, but I'm, I'm hearing people wrestle with it in a new way, especially as sexuality um, has, has been much more in the media, in right. the news. Right. So, so yes, how do we talk about it? I think there are two things I do, and then I would love to hear how you talk about it, because I think we talk about it differently. Yeah. Um, 
one, in my personal practice, I have started calling God Father and Mother God. Um, I haven't found a really a more consistent metaphor than God as parent um, that really connotes that intimacy um, and that wisdom and that um, I love you and and I know a little bit more than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I really want you and I really delight in you. Um, and I do think, I do think there's a great book called... Um, the, the Kindness of God hmm. by Janet Soskis. And she talks about how Father God was this radical name for God um, that no other God uh, had been called Father God in this really intimate, uh, nurturing, sweet way. But that like that name, Father God, is not surprising to us anymore. Right. Um, it doesn't give us all warm and fuzzies about the radical nature of our God. Um, and so for me, just simple things like incorporating mother has brought a little bit more of a God who is near and a God who is with us uh, into my life um, because my mother was very present. And my father was too. Um, but together, that's that's how I best experienced God. Um, now, I'm very reticent to use mother God when I'm leading public worship. Right. Um, I'm very reticent to use it with new people um, because I just don't know that we can have, you know, the 75-minute conversation yeah, here. Yeah, right. All right. You're totally right. Um, but I do think, I do think it's orthodox to use surprising names for God. Um, I think that is something that we need to recover and not be afraid of. And then the second thing is I do use both pronouns. Um and I honestly haven't met someone else besides Julian of Norwich that, yeah. <laughs> that does this. Um, but I think that it helps me to kind of not hold too tightly to any one name or any one image or any one kind of idol um, of who God is. And I also think for me, it's like better reflecting my lived reality, going back to how, how does um, naming, how do naming conventions um, tell the truth? about who we are and who we believe God to be. And a great example of this, I think youth are getting this far quicker than adults are. Like teenagers are catching on that there's not just one male or female box. There's not just one box for race. Um, like this is all just becoming like so much messier than <laughs> right. any one of us experienced when we were kids. Um, so how can we celebrate that rather than fear that? There's this great story when Rush uh, was youth pastor at one of the first churches he served at, and his friend Josh came in and was leading worship and led uh, this Gunger song. I don't know exactly the name of it, but it starts, God is not a man, God is not a white man, and then goes on to say, but he loves everyone. Yes. Well, what? Come on, people. a man. Yeah. And, and the youth, like, kind of pick up on it. I wasn't here, so I'm just, like, making this story, like, really imaginative in my mind. But I do know the facts. The facts were the students very quickly started mixing pronouns yeah. and, and yelling, but she loves everyone. And some people were still just comfortable with yelling, he loves everyone. Yeah. And then they were just doing, like, the ooh-la-la-la-la part together, and it was, like, this wild cacophony. And I feel like that... Like, that is what I long for in liturgy, is some sort of, like, wild cacophony of pronouns. 
um, that really captures, like, we are going to speak about this God as best we can, and it's just going to get really messy because there are all of us in this room who are longing to speak our names for God. And, and can we do that and still be unified? Um, can we do that and still say something about God? Um, Beautiful. So I would love to hear you. You said you stopped short of using she. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have, yeah. What, what has that practice been like for you as in your personal practice yeah. and in your public leadership? Well, so um, I, for about four or five years, maybe my big, my big practice was simply to stop reflexively using the masculine pronoun for God. And it took me forever. I mean, it really took me. So I really, every time I did it, I had, a, you know, a few people around me just not like trying to nail me, but just saying, okay, notice you used he. And so, in, but in, in my preaching and in my leading and my, in, to the microphone, I never said anything about it. I never said, hey, everybody, from now on, I'm just going to refer to God as God. I just started doing it. And, but of course it's awkward if you're not going to use interchangeable, like he and she, then it's just a lot of God and God's self. And, um, you know, you have to try really hard actually to, um, to not do it. But over time, um, it became natural for me to do it. And surprisingly, um, not that many people even noticed, you know, I was like, come on everybody. Um, but it's about far more than that, clearly. Uh, it's about far more. But but it does start there. It does start with the honoring of that. And um, But in my personal practice, um, as I imagine God, I try to imagine, um, and I, I don't know how to imagine a sort of fully genderful God as one. So I, I imagine God as a good father, and I imagine God as a good mother. Um, and so in my imagination, like one of the big things for me um, and I don't know why this image became so important for me is it became a question. And the question was who will stoop down and gather me up when I am, um, when I am wrecked and just alone and sort of crumpled up on a heap. And for me, that's a very feminine, um, that's a much more stereotypically feminine action to stoop down and pick up. But it's also a really strong action because I'm a, I'm a man and I have some, girth to me, have some weight to me. I'm not a small man, I'm not a tall man, but I'm not a small man. <laughs> and so it takes some strength for, um, you know, and so as I imagine this woman picking me up, um, that's a much more intimate picture than, you know, than some of the ways that I imagine God, the father or Jesus, the brother. And I do imagine Jesus, the brother a whole lot. My spiritual director always prays Jesus our good brother. And and I just, I've, I've loved that picture um, because that, that can be a much more playful side by side in it together on the adventure together. And, and that's how I'm seeing Jesus these days. Um, but also one of the instructive names, we've talked about names a lot that of course, I know, you know, but uh, the woman is called Azer Kenegdo, right? When, so Azer means help. Um, so that's where we get the, the word that's usually translated, help meet, which is such a bad, I mean, it's such a horrible <laughs> translation, but, but help is azer, and but help is used almost solely when describing God's saving, life-saving action mm -hmm. in the world. So the woman is called 
Azer, it's called Azer first. And so whatever else the woman is, the woman is a powerful life-saving force. And that's a huge thing for me. And, and when I think about stooping down to pick up, like our country right now, actually, and the world in, in particular, we feel so unsafe right now. I mean, there's, there's such a fragile sense of fear, I think needs an Azer energy from, mm. from, from God. It needs a, actually, sort of the feminine Azer help, life-saving force. But then Konegdo, as I understand it, means face-to-face or opposite, you know, and so... Um, when I think about a woman and Mary, my wife, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary on Wednesday, 20 years. And she's a very quiet, strong woman. She has a lot of strength. And so it's not hard for me to imagine, um, someone standing and looking at me face to face because that's what, that's what our relationship was like. Um, I mean, of course not all the time. I mean, I'm weird and she's weird and, and stuff, but but Azer Kenegdo, this that it, that helps me. This that so put it all together. So one of the names for woman, but but God is um, powerful, life saving, face to face companion, without which we would die, right? Yeah. And I don't know what that means. I mean, I, you know, um, without which we would die. I mean, I think that's I, I certainly w- would not die without a woman by my side, although. Maybe I think that sometimes without Mary. Um, but I think that's some of how I'm, I'm thinking about it personally. With my community, so I started a church a year and a half ago. It's called Genesis. And it's this beautiful, quirky, liturgical community. And <clears throat> we've introduced God as mother. We've introduced God as father. We, 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 we stopped short of calling God she. But I think we probably could but here's the thing. I think people just want to be respected. So don't just blurt it out like, she, eh, like, you know, double, <laughs> double middle fingers up. Say, hey, you guys, we're going to experiment with something because we believe God is expansive. We believe that we build boxes for God and then those boxes have to be shattered because they just, and they will always be. And so one of the boxes that we're building right now that we've built for God is purely masculine. And we just think that probably needs to be stretched. So would you be open to having yourself be stretched a little bit? And when we have those kinds of conversations and, you know, so it's, I mean, we're a, we're a small community. We, 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 it's, we do question and answer all throughout the whole time. It's very mm-hmm. interactive. And um, I don't know if it's quite a, a cacophony. Maybe it is because kids are involved and, but, um, but I feel like when people know that, um, and, and so I'm speaking as a pastor, I feel like when the community that I'm speaking to knows that I'm on the journey with them and I'm going to give some respect to people no matter where they're at, they're much more willing to go somewhere than if I foist something on them, whether it be on a conservative side or a much more progressive side. Either way, mm-hmm. people people actually, most people want to go on a journey, but if you take them from A to Z without explaining we're going to Z – or would you be comfortable going to B? Then people freak out a little bit. And so, um, but it's all context too, right? I mean, you've you've experienced that. It's all it's all context. I, I I'm very careful if I go on the road and speak to you know I'm I'm not going to try to blow people's um, theologies up um, unnecessarily or without the you know without the conversation. So, 
that's where I'm kind of at with it. But it's, it's, I, I hope I'm at a different place in 10 years too. You know, I hope I'm always expanding and growing about it. I love that. Those are very wise words. Um, and as I was reading through, uh, my thesis, so I think you referenced earlier that I wrote my, my master's yep. thesis on God's genderfulness. Um, it was really the, the, the subtext, um, or I should say actually the reason I wrote it, um, was to explore humor in, in feminist theology. Um, and humor is all about breaking people up, right? Yes. Cracking open like these facades of control um, and allowing yourself to be moved in a bodily way rather than just than an intellectually way, like a very integrated way. Mm -hmm. um, and so how was that a feminist move? How could humor be a feminist move and how could it be uh, a particularly Christian move to yes. allow yourself to be broken up? Mm. Um, and I got done reading it and was making hard boiled eggs and doing things to keep myself busy before this interview. So I wouldn't fret too much. And I started praying like, God, I pray in our conversation today that, that you would break me up, mm. um, that you would teach me something new. Cause I, I got to admit, like, I'm such a, I'm like really prepared. I have like tons of notes. I have like really good theological points. And, and I feel like when I go into conversations like this, um, I can do what you just uh, so gracefully said doesn't actually work. doesn't actually work to just kind of make all of these like very intellectual points and say like, this is how you should believe. Mm. Um, and this is why if I make a good enough argument, I think you'll come along with me. Yeah. And we know that doesn't work. <laughs> well, we hate it, right? But we also <laughs> are so tempted to do it. I mean, yes. Yeah. Yes. So I hope too that I learn something um, and and shift in my perspective on this. Um, not necessarily away from God's genderfulness. I love that idea, but I don't want to love that idea more than I love God. Oh, um, boom, right? It's so drop, juicy, but <laughs> um, and I'm going to keep believing it until yeah. there's a breaking up that kind of points other uh, in another direction, if there is one. But oh. When we talk about these things, it's hard for me not to get strident sometimes. And I just really appreciate you naming how important it is to context it as a journey that we're all taking together. Well, thank you. Um, I think you're, you're, I mean, that's, that's, you, you sort of playfully write about how you sometimes have tone, you know, <laughs> and, and I love, I actually love that because I think, um, I mean, even, and, and even humor, I mean, um, so I, I listen to Pete Holmes. Do you know Pete Holmes? He's sort of a comedian. Oh my gosh, he's terribly um, crass and crude, but but not in that one uh, offensive way. Just really, really hilarious. So um, lately, I've been listening to comedians because I think there's just something in me that 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 maybe it needs to be broken up. Maybe maybe that gives me language. I've said I just, I just need to laugh. I I, I need to um, because there is something that 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 happens when when we it's a vulnerable thing to laugh out loud and to, and to laugh with people. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, so I was going to, I, I, I don't know why I thought about this, but I was going to tell a story. Um, and I think this represents how hard it still is for us to think about the genderfulness of God and even about the genderfulness of each other. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So um, senior year of high school, I'm on my soccer team playing soccer and um, the ball went way up in the air. And of course in soccer, when the ball goes in the air, you're supposed to head it, you know, but it really hurts to head. I mean, it hurts. Um, And so it was coming to me and it was way up in the air. And I'm thinking, I do not want to head this ball. It's going to freaking hurt. So I trapped it, you know, and I can't remember what happened. I trapped it and maybe I, maybe I trapped it well, maybe I didn't. But um, when I went to the sideline, my coach, so my coach is this five foot two, really, I mean, he's about five foot two, barrel of a man with just, and he's just so angry. He's looking at me and steam is coming out of his, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? But I sort of know he's going to nail me for not heading the ball. And I'm going to use a word here that I hate, okay, but it's just so descriptive. He, he goes, Weens, you pussy. You know, and I'm like, and and I got so mad, you know, because he's calling me out in front of everyone else. And, but like, just, okay, let's unpack that for a second, right? So in front of other boys, a boy, a 17 year old boy was called a very pejorative term in the world of boys. And that pejorative term has to do with the place in women out of which life emerges. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so, um, you know, and I'm 45, but that was only whatever, 20 years ago, 20, 30. Okay. 30. Oh my gosh. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> um, and it's so ingrained in boys anyway, that the feminine, I mean, and, and just in, in language in playing on the playground, you throw like a girl, um, we call each other that word. Um, it's so ingrained to, to boys are ingrained to believe that the feminine is, is not only bad, but shameful. Yeah. You know? Um, and so to even start to have the conversation about integration and there's femininity in me, that's good. And I need to sort of find and see and bring out and um, harness is not the right word, but sort of enhance maybe. And then I think, you know, for girls, I don't know. I mean, what's the, you know, I think girls also get completely damaging messages about femininity and about masculinity too, males and females. But can you talk about how do we, you know, you're going to maybe be a foster parent but beyond that, you're already around other kids in your church and in your, you know, um, you know, friends that have kids, I'm sure. And so do I. How do we begin, not in strident ways that you're going to believe this, but to just be naturally helping people? Like, can that, can, can that way of thinking about gender, can that die out, you know, as, as another generation grows up? Because that's part of why it's so hard to talk about God as she, um, because immediately, without even knowing it, all these boys are unpacking, getting called a pussy uh, on the soccer field, on the soccer pitch. Do you know what I mean? Well, what was interesting to me about your book is um, you make a really subtle comment that women have... Yeah, 
perhaps had the most strong reactions yes. to you talking about this, these kinds of issues. Um, and I, I thought about why do I think that is? And then I, you know, I'd love to hear, we have time for you to say what you think that is. Um, but for me, in the same way that you were denigrated for being feminine, we are venerated for being more masculine. Um, yeah. Not in every circle, right? Like I still feel really ostracized for being um, the way I am, which sometimes comes off as more masculine, more uh, less emotional, more productive, whatever. Yeah. And I thought about it and I was like, we are rewarded um, in at least professional settings and public settings the more masculine we become. And so if God is a she, um, and we have to start aligning ourselves now with femininity, um, are we going to be even more alienated? Like, because we know that femininity is not venerated. And so now if people are going to, like, start referring to God as she, um, are we going to take the flack now? Oh, my gosh. Um, for that. And... I also think we're just afraid of our own power. I speak for myself. I'm afraid of my own power. I'm afraid of the, of really coming into my own. Like that's, you know, more scary for me than being vulnerable. Um, because as a woman, like I was taught that vulnerability gets you places. Vulnerability helps you connect with other women. Um, and if you're not very vulnerable, you won't connect very well. Um, so it's the power I think too of, gosh, what if we are really powerful? What if we have some agency um, that I think is frightening? And in small ways, I've just decided in my life, I have a brother who I adore. I um, I loved your reference to brother Jesus. I've never thought yeah. of, calling, of calling Jesus brother. Um, I adore my brother, and I grew up, like, really trying to get him to think I was the coolest. Yeah. And so I notice now in mixed-gendered groups I, like, really want the guys to think I'm the coolest. Mm. Um, and I can, like, feel that tendency in, me, tendency in me. And so, like, at the last dinner party I went to, I made myself, like, sit with the women uh. in the dining room and say, Aaron, like, these women, although they might not, like, have everything in common with you, have something so beautiful to celebrate, and you get to be in the women's room right now, and you get to listen to them, and you do not have to worry about if what the boys are doing right now is more fun. Um, so it's, it's, like, I think all of us, um, would do really well to just like grow in self-awareness uh, about those those masculine parts of ourselves or those feminine parts of ourselves, whatever our professed gender is, feel alienated um, yeah. or feel deformed. And, and what are some small things we can do just to like notice that and be gentle with ourselves and say, hey, try this. Just try this this one time. See how that feels. Um, I love that. And then I think it really does help to like have a historical perspective because um, then you can see, based on what we know to be true about how men and women have sort of evolved in their gender over time, you can start noticing patterns. Um, and you can start saying, huh, I think that's about that, because that has been with us um, since Greco-Roman gender ideas, or um, since the 50s, when women went back into the household after World War II. Like, to remind ourselves that these aren't new questions, but they have different iterations in every generation. Um, I think also helps us to feel not so alone yeah. um, and I think helps us to be more um, intelligent about looking for some of the red flags that might look benevolent um, 
but are actually hindering. And I think a, an ongoing question for me really is around if we take out pronouns altogether, if we don't use he or she, um, historically the neutered God, the neutered person has still been portrayed as masculine. Oh, you know, we have yeah. all of these, these people like Joan of Arc and um, Thecla and this 18th century preacher, Jemima Wilkinson, who looked like she, she called herself the public universal friend. Um, and this effort to be genderless, but really she like hid her body um, and she didn't have a family and she started moving in the world in all of these like very traditionally masculine ways. And so I think that's one of those things that helps for me to have a historical perspective that sometimes moving too quickly to no pronouns altogether still is not really creating space for, for the feminine other in, in our religious tradition to come alive. Oh, you're so right. I love that. And, and that's a challenge for me, actually. Um, you know, just in terms of how do I just keep moving along the spectrum of even with our community. And it also made me think, um, so I have three little boys, Isaac's eight, and then our oh. twins that are six. Uh, and they're awesome. And so before dinner, we lately, we've been um, singing the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all. And but Mary and I, um, and we've told the boys, okay, guys, the first night we're going to sing, you know, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and we're going to use masculine pronouns for God. But the next night we're going to we're going to do we're going to do female. So praise Mother, you know, Son, and Holy Ghost. And um, and although Elijah always says Holy Spirit, he he doesn't he doesn't like Holy Ghost. That's that's weird. <laughs> Um, I love Elijah. So we've been doing that, you know, and that's now becoming normal for my three little boys. And so I just, as you set, said that, like I realized, oh, actually in our house where it probably should start, um, we're, we're, we're doing some of that. And so it's going to be, uh, we're raising three boys that, uh, for whom it's going to be as normal as it can be that God is she and, and God is he and not just genderless or neutered God. So thank you for that. That is really a good, that's a good challenge. Aaron mm. Lane. Um, man, what else do I want to ask you? Do you have a question? I'm going to, I'm going to look. Um, so I think this, this all came up around the chapter of us in your book yeah. and uh, I am perpetually practical. Yeah. How else are there other examples in your daily life in which you feel like you are aware of a God who isn't us and kind of what encouragement do you hope that, that that chapter, that that concept gives people who read it? Well, uh, yeah. And I thought about that. You were so kind as to send that question. And I think, um, and I'm going to tie it into another question that you asked in that you and Rush have obviously decided not to have biological kids. We've talked about that. And so I think your question was something like, um, how do we, um, I want to, I want to get it right. Um, how do we understand the part of God that wants to conceive children? Um, and I think these two questions are, are together. So as I understand the usness that is God, the community that is God, um, what I understand as God wanting children is God is naturally generative. And so that's the word that I think I just find myself using a lot. 
God's the the maybe the most usness, the most part of usness and male and female is that God is giving birth in a sense to good in you and in me and in the world at all times. Mm-hmm. God is actively doing that. Um, and so God's children, in a sense, is that good, that, that God is continually always giving birth to in the world. Maybe hard to see, um, but even in, you know, so in our, in our city, um, a young man was shot by the police, Jamar Clark, and it's just been crazy for a month. Um, and so we, um, one of my friends is a 30-something African-American woman who's a pastor, lives in North Minneapolis, and has just been there every day and been commuting with, you know, the people and um, in North Minneapolis who are just brokenhearted. And um, so um, last week we had her come in and preach at, at Genesis. You know, in Genesis, our church is almost all white. And it really is mostly suburban people. And so... God as an us also in the generativity that God wants to bring is that we need to hear the voice of the other. We need to hear the voice of the other. And, and that's how I can like, so, and, and when we hear the voice of the other, we're hearing the voice of God because if God is us, then in the us is, I want to paint the biggest picture possible. That's every human being on planet earth. Um, then if if the only voice I'm hearing is my own or those who think like me, then I'm not hearing the I'm not hearing the voice of God actually. And so as I think about the God that is in us and the community that is God, I'm thinking about how do I hear the voice of God in the other as well. Mm-hmm. And um so that's how it's practical and tangible for me. And it's hard for me to remember that because like my late latest righteous indignation was honestly um, the the stuff going on at Liberty University and the call for students to arm themselves. I, yeah. I lost it. I mean, I absolutely lost it um, to the point where, you know, Elijah, one of my sons, came down and kind of like, "Dad, what are you what are you talking about?" Because I'm talking to Mary, you know, and I'm just ranting. And um, but but I think um, oh gosh, I'm rambling so much right now. But I think. Because when a university president of a large Christian university stands up and, in a sense, speaks for God, but that's the voice that that happens. What I want, what I have to say is, okay, that person has the right to say those things, okay, and I have to hear them. But if I'm not also hearing the young African American woman who lives in North Minneapolis and is around hurting people. If I'm not also hearing those 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 voices, then I'm just simply I'm plugging my ears to, to to God's word. And as a pastor, right? If I'm not bringing in people like D. Hernandez to preach, then um, that that's a part of my responsibility as a as a, as a shepherd is is to help people see and hear the multiplicity of voices that, that is God's children and that is, and, and that is God. So for me, that's yes. very practical, right? That, that's very practical because it would be, be very easy for me to, you know, and, and, and people's reactions for the most part were, were positive, but there were some very negative reactions too. 
just because it was like, this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> this is just so, and it was, I mean, it was beautiful, but it was uncomfortable, right? So, but what I'm hoping as a pastor, and this is where, again, it gets practical. It's like over time, because we're still in the very much, we're, we're creating culture. Who is Genesis? Over time, we, we get to decide right now that it's normal to bring in a young African-American woman to preach um, when something like this happens in our community, because that's what we do. You know, we, we yeah. want to put up, our, put up the antenna and listen for God's voice in the other. That's what we do. Like we sing around our dinner table with our kids, praise mother, son, and Holy ghost. That's normal. And mm-hmm. so how do we continue to, sensitively right just like i was saying earlier not ramming it down anyone's sort, but sensitively make things normative um and i i i think um like i can't do everything i can't go everywhere i can't spend time in palestine and north minneapolis at at all moments of my life but i can bring in people to speak i can bring you in on the podcast aaron and so i was just oh my gosh uh, but because um I, I, you know, in, in that way we can not change the conversation, but we can add to the conversation notes of beauty, no, you know, a song of wholeness. And that's, it, it, it is about wholeness, shalom. I mean, that's my thing. That's my, that's my driving force. Like that's my, if we can be about that as we talk about God and, 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 and each other, then we, we expand. We and and people expand, and we draw the circle bigger, so that more people can oh, all of a sudden not just like be included, but wake up one day and go oh my gosh I'm in the circle because the circle got widened, yeah, not, not because I got dragged in. And I think that's what genderfulness like that's the heart I hope of this conversation as I hear it between the two of us is about wholeness. Yeah, genderfulness is about wholeness. Yes. It's about like drawing the circle wide. It's about representing the diversity that's already there. We're not like adding anything (laughs) extra to the pot. Like we are just naming what is already there, what is already in our tradition, um, what is already in our church, what is already in our family systems. Like we're just naming what's already there. And I think doing things like inviting uh, genderful voices into your space is huge. I think keeping a tabs on how many examples you raise up when you're citing people. Yes, yes. It's huge. I think feminism is in the footnotes is what I tell people. Ah. You don't have to be about naming all of these mm. um, kind of buzzwords to, to start enacting a genderful God, but who are you naming implicitly? Yeah. Um, and, and is there a fairly balanced view uh, of men and women writers that you're quoting from when you're not quoting the biblical text and when you're lifting up biblical examples, like does Miriam get mentioned with Moses? Right. You know, do the like unnamed midwives in Exodus get mentioned with Moses? Mm. Um, Like who do we even name to go back to the importance of reality and naming that correctly in our, in our sermons when we're drawing illustrations uh, I think all of those are ways that we can just take these simple steps into saying we just want to be truthful. We want to lead lives of truth. Yes. Um, and 
we are also wanting to lead lives of wholeness. So how can we come up with truths collectively that bear witness to the wholeness we already see living among us? My hands are raised. You're preaching, sister. (laughs) I I mean, you're so right. I mean, we, we can get, this is not like a theory, you know, this is practice. And what you just said helps preachers, helps, um, um, teachers, parents, uh, to be, to move more toward, toward wholeness. And you're right. It's already there. I mean, it's, it's right there. So we're just being truthful about what already is. I love that. Um, And then just one more fine point on the claiming our personal wholeness. So like, hey, what, what, again, what are those masculine or feminine parts of me that are alienated? Or what are the parts of me that are over-functioning, that feel more like a caricature of me when I'm in community than feel like this actual integrated me? Um, I think all of that is working together to point towards um, wholeness and truth-telling. Oh, man. In, in your story about the dinner party, about hanging out with. The women, because you noticed inside of you that there was something inside of you that wanted to, to the, wanted the boys to notice that you were cool. There's just an intentionality about that, right? It's not over uh, navel gazing. It's not over introspection, but it's just noticing, oh, you know, that might maybe is a little out of balance and, and I need to bring that more in balance. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah. Uh, God, can you help me bring that part of me that nah, maybe is overplayed or even the caricature. Am I becoming a caricature of... <laughs> Uh, all the things that people have praised me for, you know, and, and am I just revving that engine so hard and, and, um, am I losing other parts of me, um, that if I could bring them out, I would be so much more whole and, um, and I would bring so much more to community. Um, not that that's like, what do I bring to community? I mean, that can be a sort of a, whew, a heavy thought, but, but if, if I am part of community and if bringing who I am to community is part of what brings the community toward wholeness in general, then there is some responsibility, right? I mean, there's to, to, to bringing my integrated whole self, right? Yes. And when we bring our integrated whole selves, we create a larger space for people to do the same. Like when I see someone else being whole and bringing those parts of themselves, fragility and appropriateness, recklessness, whatever you're bringing to the table, and you can bring it to the table, and you can talk about it honestly, and you can claim some goodness uh, amidst it or in it, like I'm like, oh, I can be kind of angsty here too. Um, We can make some beauty out of all of this. And, right. and just the permission giving of you living your life whole, what that does for cultures uh, that you move and live and breathe in is just, uh, yeah, it's transformative. Right? It's yeah. Just, now, okay, it's so just for a second. So you mentioned, you know, the three, your, your, your three fragility, recklessness, and inappropriateness. But, and so, you know, we're honest about that. But what about being honest about the things we kick ass at? You know what I mean? Like, what yeah. about, I mean, and that's a vulnerability that I think, um, now I'm not talking about, you know, being bombastic. I'm not talking about um, sort of fishing for compliments. But, but there, is a, there, there is a freedom and spaciousness that comes when I'm around someone who owns what they're really great at too. Not in a weird way. Not in a way that makes other people feel uh, diminished, but um, so how do you, how have you experienced, how have you played with that, Aaron Lane? 
I'm trying to get better at it. I love when someone asks Flannery O'Connor why she writes. She's like, because I'm good at it. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. That's why I write because I'm good at it. So I feel like I'm, that's become my new answer. Because um, I'm good at it and I like it. Yes. Um, and I have no illusion that I would be able to understand like 5% of myself if I didn't do it. Um, right, right. so it's my own practice towards self-awareness, but yeah, it's, and that's a very gendered thing too, claiming what you're good at. Um, mm. you know, I felt like I'd really tried to write lessons and belonging from an abundance perspective that was like very charitable to myself and to the relationships I was writing about, which were so tender because I still live in the community that I write about being very ambiguous about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so letting those people read the manuscript and uh, letting my family, like all of that was just like so difficult. But I tried to have this abundance mentality. And then I get this review where the reviewer calls me self-congratulatory. Oh my God. And I was like, A, I'm totally stereotyping you and I assume that you're a really old man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that there is something about a young woman who is not apologizing um, for flitting around churches and not being able to belong very easily um, that is offensive to you, that I am not more self-shaming about that. Uh. That, I, that I see that, and I see some of God in that. I see some of God in that flitting around yeah. um, and that wanting commitment to be meaningful. And that doesn't mean I turn a blind eye to my sin, but like, yeah, I think people need to be more unstable sometimes. Adults need to embrace instability um, sometimes more than stability. There are lots of idols with stability, just like there are with instability. And, and so that's just so interesting to me that, um, when women don't also, or aren't vulnerable enough or don't kind of first lead with like what they know to be true about themselves, but maybe this is what I'm leaning into, um, that somehow that's offensive, uh, to someone. So I'm, I'm trying to claim the things uh, the gifts I bring, like writing, yeah. um, like my fire energy. I love trying to come up with things to say that are fresh and animated. I hate drones. Like I just want people's voice to like go up and down um, and, and act like they really care about something. Um, and then I'm really good at being available to people. Mm. Um, I talk a lot about my husband and I practicing the ministry of availability. And like I am decidedly not busy. Like, I almost put that in my about section. Like, I'm not busy. Just not a busy person. I'm great at, like, boundaries and solitude and spaciousness. And I've got, like, time for days. Um, and I think that is just, like, a really beautiful discipline um, that I've cultivated. And uh, there are times where it becomes a stumbling block and it just becomes, like, too too structured. And, and I've got to, like, rethink the whole thing and open my doors back up to spontaneity. But, man, like, I think that's a real gift I bring to my friends and my marriage and the church. I mean, yes. And so when we, one of the first emails I got from you, I noticed your footer on the email. And the footer is, I do email from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it was like not even every day. It was like. Tuesday through Friday or something, or Monday through Friday. What is it? Was, it was Monday through Thursday. You're getting you're getting a special Friday edition of Aaron. Right, Mama. <laughs> I mean, let's all praise the Lord for that. No, but I mean, I noticed that. I was like, I've never seen that before, and I immediately said, "Man, could I do that? I could do that." 
And I felt all afraid, like, oh my gosh, if I do that, <laughs> then, you know, how, how would I know I'm, I'm, I'm important to people if I'm not checking email, you know, and solving problems. And I was like, oh no, oh good Lord. Um, so just even that little thing. So I believe you when you say that, um, that you, that what you just said about not being busy and about, but I also, and you said there's a structure to that. So like, I think some people think not being busy is just this big, you have to just live this spontaneous life and being available just means whatever you do, whatever you want, whatever. But actually it, it probably requires quite a bit of discipline and quite a bit of boundaries and quite a bit of no saying to certain things so that you can be available at certain times. Am I right on that? I mean, it must be. Yeah. Right. Knows the default. I mean, yeah. that's just like my, I'm a freelancer knows the default. Yeah. Um, and uh, a mentor of mine, Rosie Molinari, actually, um, that, that first woman who got me into writing, um, has the wholehearted continuum of decision-making. Mm. Um, and she takes you through the very first thing is, am I delighted to get this invitation? And so every time something comes Ooh. in, I think, am I really delighted? Or like, could they have just asked anyone? Like, you know, like, does this really feel like something that's like, the person knows my gifts and like notices who I am or like, could I do it? But I'm actually not delighted to do it. And it takes you through this whole like six series question. And you get to the end. And the last question is, am I going to be like excited to take out the trash when this is done? Oh, mom. Like, right? is this like, going to drain me or energize me? Basically is what that's saying. And am I going to be so, am I going to be able to be so present to every moment? So not just the planning, not just the doing, but like afterwards, am I going to be willing to linger am I going to have energy to linger or am I going to be like done yeah, like now yeah, going on okay. to the next thing and so for me like that that structure having a system by which I kind of say what is worthy of my time um and knowing that like time with rush time by myself and and time with my dog um which yeah. for me is often god time um the two of us like to have quiet time together in the office um, like that's what's getting eaten into. And so everything I say yes to like, okay, like what, what, like what are those other places getting? Cause I really love those. And this has to delight me and feel like an extension of one of those rather than a diversion from one of those. I love that. Um, can, is that resource that six steps to, is that a resource? I can send it to you. Get? Yeah. Rosie has it on uh, her blog. She's a writer as well. Okay. Cause I want to clear it on the show notes too. For Is it something that people can look up and get? I'll give it to you. I don't, okay. she has a graphic that okay. you can share. Okay. Yeah. Send that to me. That would be fantastic. I want it for me. Um, and if you listeners don't get it, sorry, you know, <laughs> sorry. Um, okay. I am feeling like. It's an hour and 35 minutes, and we should probably wrap it up. Although, good Lord, there's so many other things. Um, you've mentioned your book a few times, um, but I want you can – can, can we finish with asking you a couple questions about your book? Sure. Okay. So you wrote this book, Lessons in Belonging from a Church-Going Commitment Phobe, and essentially among many things. And, and what I found so delightful about it was – um, and Parker Palmer writes the freaking inner forward. And I didn't, I, so I have it on my Kindle. So I didn't even know, right. I didn't see like forward by Parker. So I'm reading this forward and I'm like, this sounds a whole lot like Parker Palmer. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And I should have, you know, I, I knew you were for the courage, uh, the center for courage and, um, what's it Renewal. called? 
So I should have known that. But and then I sort of freaked like Parker Palmer. Anyway, <laughs> so I freaked out about that. Um, but he and so in the in the introduction, um, I will quote. I haven't even recorded it yet. But so I'm going to talk about it like as if, as if it's in the past tense. Okay. But now just revealing that. Anyway, I'm going to quote part of what he said about about what you about the kind of writing that you do about the church that it's so actually hopeful and it's um and it's done from the standpoint of someone who really and I should I should I should pull it out right now and read it but I I can't find my Kindle anyway um the question is it's a book from a millennial ostensibly about church and about belonging so what kinds of reactions have you gotten from fellow millennials about what you, about how you write about belonging in church? I think the thing I hear most often is they are glad it doesn't have a neat and tidy ending. Yeah, for sure. That's the thing I hear most, that there is such discernment when it comes to who we will yoke ourselves with and who we will belong to. And I think one of the things that's been interesting as I talk about the book is I'm actually talking less about belonging and more talking about individual voice and agency. Because mm. I think the church has done a really bad job of saying you have a choice in who you belong to. Mm. It is important that you belong. You belong just by the very nature of who you are. But who you live out that belonging with is very important. You know, Paul uses this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ, but then like has this beautiful reflection I think it's in Galatians um, that like, be careful. You don't eat one another up. Ooh, like mama. you are a body, yeah. but like y'all can eat one another up and you yeah. can lose your sense of self. You can become so good at belonging that you don't know what it's like to have personal accountability yeah. or responsibility or courage yeah. because you are so enmeshed in the group. And I don't think we've talked a lot in the Christian churches I've been in about differentiation and just the, and the importance of kind of, um, choosing belonging freely, knowing that it's not going to be perfect, yeah. um, but that it does matter who you rehearse it with. And uh, so I think that has been very life-giving for them, other wanderers like me, yeah. to say, I really do want to find a place, and it's not entirely bad that it's taking me a while. I'm going to give myself some grace on that. And I'm going to check myself, too, to make sure I don't have any illusions about why this isn't happening but it's okay for it to like be a slow process. Yeah. You know, getting married is a slow thing for a lot of people. Yeah. You date for a while, you get married, and even then, you're not instantly one. Like two become one <laughs> over the course of a life. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and sometimes you need to like step back out and be like, ooh, I'm losing my two-ness. Like, kind yeah. of what does this relationship mean? So I think yeah. that's been the, the best encapsulation of other young wanderers like me. Like, thank you for saying that this is okay, that it's hard. Yeah, that's good. And that, that resonates. You start the book basically praising disillusionment. Um, you say, listen, it's good to be disillusioned. That, that means we, we healthily lose our illusions and or high expectations about what something could be or should be so that we can actually, uh, learn what it is and, and, and enter what it is. And I, I, I love that. And that seems to be what you're saying there too. Um, okay. So here's a juicy question and maybe the answer is nothing. What would you want to change now in the book if you could? 
Yeah, so I don't think I'm going to answer that. Okay, 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 okay. That would take me to a really dark place. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, don't don't answer it then. I will just reference your excitement and energy and anxiety about your book coming out. I felt this very intense um, vulnerability that was about to come um, when my book was about to come out this time last year. And I started seeing a therapist just to like make sure like I was just really um, as grounded as I could be and willing to let the book baby be birthed um, and know that I would have some control over its like development uh, in the world, but that like it now had legs beyond me. Um, and so I actually went to a workshop last week where we got to release something we wanted to let go of from 2015 and we wrote it on magic paper uh, and let the paper go in the water and it just dissolved. Um, and, and I put lessons in belonging. I love you. Yeah. Like be free, be what you will. Um, and I'm going to stop worrying about what you aren't. Oh, that is so, um, good. And uh, I mean, I, um, Liz, Liz Gilbert says something similar about, I remember in an interview when someone asked her about the movie that came out for Eat, Pray, Love, and, um, you know, it's kind of different from the book, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. And she just said, I, I let Eat, Pray, Love go. And it, it became a teenager and grew up and it became something else and that's okay. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, that's so wise. Um, that's such a wise and hard thing. I mean, I can't even imagine I mean, right now. I mean, and I don't like when people call their books, their babies, you know, and that's weird. I mean, <laughs> we actually have, you know, it's like some of them have babies. So it's not my baby, but I get why they do it because it really was, you know, such a process, a gestational process to bring it out. And there's all this pride in it and a lot of your DNA is in it. So, I mean, I totally get it, but, um, but here am I a year, about a year, um, in, behind where you are. So is there anything, I mean, I know this is the podcast, but maybe it would help people. What would you tell me on the eve of my release of this mm. book? What would you, what advice would you give? What, yeah. What would you, what would you say to me? I would say go slowly. Mm. So there's the pressure to feel like everything has to happen within the six months. Right after the book comes out. And I think we all as writers want to trust that if our work uh, can stand the test of time, uh, that we will be richly blessed. And so I think just going slow and being very gentle with yourself is one of the things um, I found very life-giving. And then the second thing is like, have so much fun. Like if you get like three invitations that come in and they all sound like delightful and they all like check the continuum of delight, like spend yourself for a month and then like come back to that rhythm of slowness. Yeah. Like, but it's okay to like jazz out on like the interviews you get to do because of the book and, and the pieces you get to write um, and the people you get to meet, like, yeah, geek out, like, be be a fan of that process and like grab onto what you grow want to grab onto and let go of what you want to let go of but like delight mm. delight in some of the frenzy and then find those places of slowness well that sounds wise <laughs> no thank you you can tell me how it goes in <laughs> oh, I, I will tell you in a year <laughs> yeah oh my gosh um okay well Aaron, was there anything that you wanted me to ask you that i didn't I don't think so. 
Yeah, you asked what I was writing. That was the only thing I was thinking about. And we got to that. We got to this long, lengthy emails that I think might eventually turn into something about yeah. making the decision to, to not have bio babies. I'm sort of calling them bio babies, and I don't think anyone else calls them that yet. Um, Love that. People think I'm saying, like, bionic babies. or like, it's very <laughs> confusing to people. Um, but I feel, I feel so strongly that I've got to live it. Like, I don't yeah. – yeah, I've got to live it. Like, it's all so theoretical right now, this commitment. Um, I've got to live it. So yeah. I'm going to do a little bit of living um, and, then, and then see what comes next. Love it. Well, let's um, – gosh, let's – Let's close out the podcast, but stick around for a second because I want to just say thank you after I close the um, after I stop the recording. Okay. Okay. Um, so, but publicly, thank you, Aaron, so much. This was so rich and good, and I can't wait to put this out uh, to the community of people that listen. Um, there, it's just it's fun. It's a fun community of people that are really. Um, I think they're going to pick up what you're putting down in a big, big way. And just thanks for being a friend in this process and for being so encouraging. Thanks for reading my book. And for talking about it, um, you know how vulnerable that is. And it's, it's just so to get someone that resonates with it, um, someone like you that resonates with it is very affirming. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. We will see where it goes. I will try to be both slow and excited um, <laughs> and unplug. And I will try to accept things that are delightful and say no to other things. Um, that is very good. So, okay. Um Aaron, we have a thing that we, um, are on the podcast, I say, I always close out with our, we have a mantra for the podcast and it's sort of weird. And by we, do I mean I? I mean, am I just using the plural? I feel um, like I should have known this mantra before we started. Well, I should have told you, <laughs> but I'll just say it to you. Um, but it's um, because the, the, the name of the podcast is This Good Word. So every week I do one word. And then the sort of tagline is reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. And so, um, so our little mantra is we are dust and breath. We are human and holy. We are limited and limitless and we are in it together. So I would say that to you, my friend. Um, and thank you so much. Mm, thank you. All right. Peace out, everybody. See you next week.